I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nuts based in Namma, Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Manoj, a journalist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. The Takshashila Institution offers 12-week online courses in public policy, technology policy, and defense and foreign affairs. The courses are ideal for both full-time students and working professionals. Admissions for the September 2019 batch are now open. Visit our website takshashila.org.in for more details. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Manoj and today I have with me Shambhavi and Rohan and we're going to be talking about the economist and the articles that we've read in the economist. Now we didn't do this last week um because all of us nearly just about all of us were down with a throat problem and flu issues but this week we're going to be talking about both those magazines from last week and this week and the things that we've read in these two magazines. And we've got an interesting mix of articles. We're going to be talking about shifting corporate culture, the role of companies in society in the future. We're going to be talking about nationalism, British universities, and the changes that they are undergoing. And Shambhavi, I'm going to begin with you because you've got something really fascinating about leopard seals. Can we start with that? So leopard seals—they are like—they look like leopards. So they have these polka dot things, hence they're known as leopard seals. And they are powerful, solitary carnivores uh, who have been known to take down humans as well. So like single human okay. for eating purposes. so they're clearly dangerous uh, but what people have been noticing uh, recently is that uh, when divers have been going near to leopard seals the leopard seals have been offering them food so the food generally food for them generally is penguins so okay. they eat king penguins and a lot of people were very surprised by this behavior of them offering food so uh, this philanthropy got a lot of attention and what this particular group uh, which was led by this guy called James Robbins at Plymouth University was looking at is why are the penguins doing this okay uh, so oh, leopard why are leopards doing, doing this uh, so uh, what they uh, did was they sent drones to check how these animals behave uh, usually and what they found was that while they're solitary uh, usually when when they've been observed in in nature they've been solitary when hunting for food they actually form groups Okay. Uh, and this is because the king penguin is of a very big size. Hmm. So they might not be able to take him down in us uh, if they are if they are alone. Okay. Right? So the idea is that uh one guy will go and catch the neck of the penguin and some other guy will come and then take the part of a flesh out okay. and then he will go and catch the neck and this yep. guy will come and have some morsels out. Yeah. So they actually have this structure hmm. where they are solitary but for eating purposes they usually find a partner uh just to just because it makes it easier for them to bring down their food and eat uh and then part of this culture has probably just been carried over now if they don't know find a partner they will go and find a diver that they see uh and offer food so it's like a dining partner thing but it comes from this entire behavior that has been developed because they cannot take down the king penguin on their own that's fascinating i mean can, can you can is this sort of any parallel to sort of how we've come from caves to modern dining tables where we also you know as hunter gatherers uh, and then you know essentially obviously there must have been an 
evolutionary desire and instinct to you know cater for your own generations yeah. going forward yeah but beyond that this idea that uh, it's fascinating how this notion of everybody must be sharing their food together comes from this need of actually having to get the food together yeah, yeah. Um, and observing safety even while eating right yeah so yeah fascinating i wonder if that changes now because a lot of people sit in front of their tvs and eat exactly so i don't maybe it slowly die out now well thankfully uh, leopard seals don't enjoy netflix yeah and okay. they have stable minds clearly yeah <laughs> great take away from that manoj <laughs> <laughs> um okay um so let's move away from leopard seals you okay. were you had something about ebola and some cure or treatment for yeah, ebola yeah so the leopard seals idea was i mean i first thought when i was reading the article oh leopard seals look cute and stuff and it turned out to be really gory And I can imagine. It's nice table manners, but it, it it goes into great detail about how they eat, catch and eat a penguin. Hmm. Uh, the Ebola article, on the other hand, is uh, very encouraging. Uh, so Ebola, as you know, is a very infectious disease. Is very kills ninety percent of people who yeah. have got it, and is very prevalent in parts of Africa. Hmm. Uh, the recent ongoing epidemic is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Hmm. Uh, it's supposedly killed over. 1900 people already hmm. in this one epidemic and it is difficult to stop uh partially because there's a lot of mistrust in the healthcare system itself hmm. uh so so far we haven't had any drugs for uh, ebola it's vaccines and recently we have seen even in like the US and in India this anti-vaxxer movement is becoming very strong hmm. uh and this is also prevalent in Africa hmm. uh, so many people do not believe that the vaccines work hmm. they believe that a lot of the healthcare workers are trying to give them either substandard vaccines or you know just making things worse for them yeah uh, so there is this movement of stopping people who have got uh, from receiving the vaccine itself and hence va- ebola has not been able to be curbed hmm. in the past few months there has been a trial on two uh, antibodies against ebola which would probably act as a cure hmm. so they're not vaccines anymore they're actually medicines yeah. so the idea that if you have got ebola it can be cured might bring down that barrier uh, of patients hmm. right and might help cure more cases of ebola so they have trialed these two antibodies on about 499 patients so it's a small subset for participants um but because uh, the the results were so remarkable that the who just decided to stop the trial and bring the bring the drugs out uh, for people's benefit uh, so what they saw with these two antibodies so one is known as regn eb3 Hmm. and the other is mab114 hmm. so there are no fancy names these are just generic names yeah. so what they saw with the regn eb3 was that it brought down mortality to 29% mm-hmm. uh, so from 90 to 29% yeah. uh, and the mab114 brought it down to 34% okay. so which is quite significant yeah. anyways what they further saw when they stratified the patients was that people who had been recently infected and so had a low viral load in them regn was effective in 94% of patients oh, that's brilliant yeah and the mab114 was uh, effective in 89% oh, okay. of patients so this is really bringing a lot of hope yeah right in curbing the ebola uh, epidemic uh, what so what the regb and regn eb3 is it has a cocktail of three antibodies hmm. uh, the mab114 is uh, is a single antibody it was developed against the same ebola virus that caused an epidemic in the congo in 1995 mm-hmm. so it has been under development for a while now uh, so what what is really what people are really hoping is that is that these drugs will help bring out more ebola patients and would help 
hopefully help change the attitude yeah. in Africa to the way Ebola is perceived and treatment to it is perceived. What was really nice that so uh, I spoke about this in my newsletter, the compound dive mm-hmm. uh, last week, and what I felt really nice was that um, just like Ebola, uh, we have this uh, TB uh, epidemic in India, yeah, uh, and. ICMR is starting trials on vaccines again. Mm-hmm. So we already have this BCG vaccine which is available, but it is really old. We are also starting a trial in yeah. India yeah. Uh, for TB. And I, I hope that both Africa and India can share their lessons and um, we can curb both of these diseases, which are clearly preventable. Yeah. Um, and I think it will be great. And that's the important thing, right? I mean, you know, governments uh, and industry and governments need, need to sort of serve uh, specific sectors and they, you know you need to devise medicines and vaccines for your own conditions also yeah. and that's the kind of investment that is also needed you can't necessarily anticipate just that you know international bodies or global multinationals are going to be serving to address sort of problems that are more prevalent in certain parts of the yeah. world unless those are important markets I mean yeah. there's a there's a business to pharmaceutical and you can't really expect them to be solving your problems yeah um, and you will need to sort of invest in solving your own problems. But yeah. this is great news. This yeah, is fascinating is. news. It's this really is wonderful nice. news. Um, so we're going to go from what is actually quite good news, uh, that we're getting treatment with regard to Ebola, to go to something completely different, a new malaise for which we're going to look at treatments, which is facial recognition. So Rohan, what exactly is happening in that world? The Economist comes up with this really fascinating article on how facial recognition is spreading around the world. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you have all these techniques that are coming up to subvert facial recognition. Yeah. So I'll just bri- briefly go over what the article says. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got these um, big law enforcement agencies around the world mm-hmm. using facial recognition from different public cameras to yeah. just identify people for their law enforcement purposes. So this had a significant backlash in San Francisco, San Francisco and Oakland. So in Britain, members of parliament are also calling against this tech without success. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that the more these technologies spread, people are sort of using more novel means to sort of subvert this. So we've got this guy called um, David Harvey. Okay. And he's come up with a couple of techniques. So the first one is uh, called a CV Dazzler. Okay. So um, CV as in computer vision Dazzler. Okay. And the other one... So it's CV Dazzle, and the other one's called Hyperface. So what both of them effectively do is reduce the chance for an AI algorithm or a facial recognition algorithm to recognize a person's face. Okay. And you see the you see this being done also by systems developed by Google. So yeah, the the broad idea is that facial recognition spreads and people find ways to counter it. What my takeaway from this article was that it's sort of become more like a sort of cycle of events, right? Technologies uh, and algorithms that detect faces sort of will improve over time. And you have all these technologies that will sort of be high-tech or low-tech solutions to not having your faces recognized for law enforcement or for yeah. just privacy reasons. What's interesting is that the debate, in this article at least, is not focused on whether we should have this facial recognition for law enforcement at all, mm-hmm. but how to subvert it. Yeah. Um, and I think the the broader question here should be, do we actually need facial recognition at such a massive scale? Because um, whenever you have advancements in, let's say, um, law enforcement or security or areas of national security or military, most of these tech advancements hmm. come at a significant cost to privacy. And uh, 
the fact that we're not having this debate as much as we should about facial recognition yeah. and how it's being deployed by different governments around the world. I mean, China has a fairly comprehensive facial recognition program yeah. that tracks people. So, yeah, I, I just guess that this debate should get more traction on in years to come. Yeah, I mean, I mean the privacy point is obviously important, but I'm just the fact that this is being used by law enforcement. So reflexively, we we tend to look at anything like this being used by law enforcement with a deep sense of suspicion. Mm. But I mean, I'm just going to read out something new that happened uh, that was reported the last week in China. Mm. So there's this man named Zhang as common the Chinese name as you can find. Um, and this is reported in one of the sudden Chinese newspapers. It happens in a city called Xiamen. Um, and essentially what happens is that this man named Jiang's girlfriend has died. He's uh, killed her. So he's not a good man. And he decides that uh, he's uh, going to use her account to acquire a loan. Um, and in order to get clarity for that, to get clarification for that role, he uses uh, facial recognition. Um, and obviously he ends up getting caught. And that's where, you know, the problem is that he tries to scan, uh, you know, her face to apply for the loan. And obviously the system picks up that there is something problematic here. So, uh, I mean, long story short, there is something to be gained from using modern technology for law enforcement, of course. Um, the issue of privacy is obviously structural, right? I mean, firstly, it is like, how do you, what do you define as private? Mm. How do you define it? Uh, what do you define as secure? We've become so used to giving our thumbprints when we walk into work uh, mm. at most places. And the same thumbprints are used for other purposes also. Um, so the idea is how things can be secured, how data can be secured, how leakages can be plugged, uh, and what what sort of multiple sort of, say, if you're using your thumbprint to enter your office, but you're also using it to access your bank account, your bank account probably should have more layers of security for certain kinds of access. Um, so I presume some of that is uh, is a conversation that needs to come across, even the same yeah. with facial recognition. Um, but are is California and are these guys doing something different? Because I, from what I understood, California said they would not apply use facial recognition. Right? Yeah. So they've gone ahead and said that law enforcement agencies, the police, should not use um, facial recognition cameras. And I think this debate is going to get more interesting in years to come because. It's not just that facial recognition is going to be more widely adopted. Uh, the uses for it on the back end are also going to diversify. Exactly. Because uh, I think I was reading last week that now cameras can also detect what emotions you're feeling. Yep. Uh, and I imagine it's only a matter of time before that tech can be actually applied for mass surveillance. Yeah. And when you think about this, you get that Orwellian 1984 yeah. photo coming to mind. And that... And this is going to, as applications for facial recognition diversify, this is a conversation that will start to, you know, that will start to intensify and we need to have this you know, right now and going forward. You know, this idea of emotions being de detected, it's interesting that, again, reflexively you went to uh, mass surveillance. Yeah. Um, I'll give you another Chinese example. And it's fascinating how these Chinese examples are also positive about the use of technology. <laughs> um, but uh, this is an example, again, from another city in the country where schools have started using cameras uh, and they use uh, facial recognition to whatever level of success. And the idea is to assess uh, changes in uh, facial expressions of students to then analyze whether they're actually absorbing, understanding, mm. being engaged in what's being taught. Um, and that's being used to sort of understand the effectiveness of teaching methods. Um, you could also maybe use it to see that whether somebody's daydreaming and then punish them. <laughs> but uh, the idea is that you uh, use it to improve the quality of education, at least in theory. Um, so again, uh, at one level, we reflexively go to privacy, surveillance, 1984, Orwell. 
uh, to another level is something like this. Uh, so I guess technology is... Wasn't this is, used hmm. like hypothetically in Ocean's 13? To Did like... Yeah, so in Ocean's 13, there is the... They have the... In the casino, they have the system to see if people are... Oh, yeah. oh yes, 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 yes. And yes, it, yes, it looks yes. at your expression. I mean, yes. it looks at how excited you are yes. and stuff like that. And so, so just um, coming back to not Ocean's Thirteen, <laughs> I just want to say that as you know, as the education system adopts facial recognition and as casinos also do it, <laughs> the the bigger question will also then come back to data. Hmm. Also, like who holds the data yeah. of facial recognition? Yeah. Who owns uh, sort of their emotions? Yeah. In a sense. So we will circle around this a lot more in years so to come. So ideally, what we're advising our listeners is to every day wake up and practice their poker faces. Also, read my op-eds on data and stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the discussion is not long away, right? Because the 2020 Olympic Games is supposed to have facial recognition. Yep. Oh, yeah. But the tickets have. The, yeah. yeah. I imagine the discussion's already begun. It's just that it hasn't happened in such a big way because other things keep taking precedence. But like in in the background, this thing's developing really fast. Okay, okay, okay. So we should not be talking about Greenland. We should be talking about this. Faceland. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Facebook. Okay. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> anyway, okay. So I'm going to now move to something which is completely different, um, which is one of the sort of feature pieces in the Economist this week, which is about. Um, Essentially, the role of modern corporations in society. The question that the piece asks is, what are companies for? What are companies meant to do? Uh, And what's underwriting this is the idea that this notion that companies exist to maximize shareholder value, it's sort of run its course. Um, And this week, there were about 180 corporate sort of head honchos in the US who met. Um, These are people from, say, the chiefs of Walmart, JP Morgan Chase. And they basically came out and said that, oh, look, our job is no longer to just... uh, serve our shareholders and we also serve our customers, our staff, our suppliers and our broader communities. And there's a social responsibility that we carry. And this is different from CSR. Um, But this idea that corporations are entities which exist within this framework and uh, they can't be divorced from responsibility of broader society. I really wish listeners could see my face at this point of time. Exactly, <laughs> totally, <laughs> total disbelief. <laughs> exactly, and um, and the piece is quite the piece when they argue this is sort of quite an honest assessment, and they say that look, part of this is very immediate, short-term political motivation. The elections are coming soon, um, and there is increasing there is an increasing sense that the left-leaning Democrats are sort of doing better, and that sort of narrative has taken hold. Um, Elizabeth Warren wants to break up big tech. Sanders wants them to pay more. Um, so there's a lot of that that's happening. Um, and there's also this sort of, uh, but there's this broader sort of principled uh, shakeup that's happened, which is that are your decisions which are motivated by pure shareholder interest and short-term gains actually serving long-term needs? And this all goes back to the 2008 crisis. Um, that, you know, what led to that crisis was short-term gains and therefore creating conditions for what was a long-term problem. Um, so there was a sense of also decline in business ethics, right? You know, bankers end up getting bailouts, but they also want bonuses, uh, which is what we saw during the early years of the Obama administration. And that's where this sort of discussion is going on. And I want to read a piece, uh, a bit of a paragraph from the article, because I thought it was very interesting in terms of how it argues that there is this now there is this consciousness of collective capitalism. Uh, which is what this represents, this idea of being part of the community. Um, And it says that, you know, while all this might sound fuzzy and great and whatever, it's not necessarily useful and this is not how you address capitalism's ills. And so what do you need to do 
The piece says, the way to make capitalism work better for all is not to limit accountability and dynamism, which is what collective capitalism would do. Because you'd have a bunch of senior executives with major companies and you'd have a certain bunch of elected politicians telling everybody in the broader community, we know what's good for you guys. And the amount of authority it gives to some of these corporate heads is far more than they should actually be deserving. So that's not the way to do it. It is to enhance dynamism and accountability. How do you enhance some of this is by not giving all this power to executives and certain campaigners, uh, but actually trying to increase ownership of people in, co in companies, which implies getting more people to actually invest in the equity markets, to be able to be owners of these companies and to be able to find ways in which these companies are then resp responsive to these retail owners. Great idea, but just owning stocks. Firstly, stock ownership is limited even in America. It's not I think it's about 50% people tend to invest in equity markets. So it's not even all the people. So how do you broad base it enough? In a country like India, it's way lesser. Mm -hmm. So how do you broad base this enough? Secondly, how do you ensure that as a retail investor who owns equity, say, of a certain company for at least three years or four years, if I even have a long-term horizon, I have really no say. Even at 9% of equity holding in a certain company, I would have no yeah, say. So... Can you sort of switch regulation to that degree? Um, so interesting piece. Interesting. Can piece. you get any work done if regulation is stressed to that degree? That's mm. the other thing, right? How do you, yeah. uh, you know, if you're constantly going to be answerable, how do you yeah. get some work done? Uh, and uh, again, there has to be a threshold at which equity ownership matters. Um, and maybe enough retail investors can come together and become a critical mass and then say, okay, look, we want a certain kind of thing. Then maybe. Uh, but again, that sort of requires... Such a, bro in, I mean, in, in a country like the US, where again, despite uh, there being information, despite there being investment being more common, the percentage of people invested are so low. Uh, when I look at a country like India, um, I don't see how any of this is really going to work. Mm. Um, it just sounds, it sounds good on paper, but really, yeah. really tricky to do something like this. Yeah, I mean, I remember this. Uh, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So he goes into this congressional hearing and a member of the Congress is cites the salary of a starting JP Morgan analyst mm -hmm. and says that it's not nearly enough to meet his slash her needs. Mm. And I, I just keep connecting this conversation to that, mm. that employees in sort of these big companies, yeah. they deserve more ownership, more, more money yeah. in a sense. Because the income disparity between sort of these companies, like they're very top heavy is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah. And th that needs to change. Um, also, just as Manoj said, it it sounds nice. Yeah. But as to how it should be done or yeah. how it's going to be done, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, go back to 2008, right? When all these big companies failed, uh, people were at the top level, even when they were going off, they were going off with such golden parachutes, hmm. whereas others were losing yeah. their jobs, losing their houses. Um, so it's really difficult as to how you're going to be actually addressing this. So all this conversation about, you know, uh, collective capitalism sounds great, but it sounds really, really uh, unlikely that any of this is really going to have any impact. Okay, so from collective capitalism to universities in Britain, uh, what's happening with them? You were telling us that something's dramatically changing over here. And all of us are obviously very interested in it because all of us are products of British universities in one way. Yeah, um, fun fact. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think all three of us, Manoj, Shamavi and I, yeah. have studied in the UK at one phase mm -hmm. or the other. Yep. So what this piece in The Economist is saying that 
up until 2012 to 2015 you had some restrictions on different kinds of universities in the uk saying that you can only take in these many students mm-hmm. but in 2015 all these restrictions start to be lifted and what you see is, see is that this whole university system starts behaving like a proper market so what happens is once these restrictions are lifted oxford and cambridge don't sort of expand their class sizes i assume to maintain quality but other members of the russell group so uh, for context russell group is sort of england's ivy league mm-hmm. if that helps and what happens here is so research focused institutions in the russell group so ucl i think queen mary what they do is their intake increases by 16% okay. which is significant but then some other universities just start ballooning so bristol's intake shoots up by 62% Okay. Mm-hmm. And Exeter's by 61%, mm-hmm. and Newcastle by 43%. Mhm. So what you have is these sort of mid-tier universities just expanding like anything. Yeah. But who this is costing is universities that are not really great. So you London Metropolitan for instance losing intake by 42%. Mhm. So it it's this just whole contrasting divide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where like the people at the lowest of the ladder when i say people i mean universities yeah at the lowest rung they're just losing students like anything yeah the mid tier is just ballooning mm-hmm. and like as you go closer to the top you've got you know, no significant changes yeah so what this sort of is telling me is that education's a business yeah. more than anything yeah especially like in bristol or newcastle it's yeah. just unreal how It's almost like they're just waiting for the student cap to be lifted yeah. so that they can just poach more students. Yeah. And what this leads to is that um universities that are not near the top yeah start dropping courses and they're just shrinking down to at a point where it's barely sustainable to run a But from a student's point of view uh isn't it a good thing that uh, because uh, these caps are gone uh increasingly uh, you are going to you you have the option of going to a better university than you otherwise did because you're anyway paying a lot of money yeah it's not like an international student is not paying you know uh, the the marginal differences uh, in terms of universities so mm. you're anyway paying a lot of money um, and you're potentially now going to get a better education than you would have yes but at the same time your degree will start to mean less hmm. because if everyone let's say has a degree from bristol hmm. then at one point of time as an employee you just be like well you went to bristol what's so special about that also one other interesting thing here is that as soon as sort of these restrictions are lifted there is this maximum charge think of it like as an mrp hmm. on wow what a student a british student can be charged okay. for going to university and it's 9250 pounds it was always that yeah i'm not sure if this was always there it but was always there. Was so, there so basically what happened is all of these courses are now priced at 9250 so in okay. my in the second year of my phd it was it jumped from 3000 pounds a year to 9000 pounds a year right yeah. i there was one policy change where the so for a phd degree uh, the home students were uh, charged 3000 um while international students were charged like 15000 pounds or something oh yeah uh, per year yeah uh, and then somewhere when i was still there it the increased that charge from 3000 to 9000 uh, for home students mm-hmm. so so just uh, why did they do this why did they change this policy right now i'm not entirely sure why this has changed 
an uneducated guess would um, say maybe Brexit. Okay. But no, no, because this happened before Brexit. So I I, I'm think, not entirely sure. I would sure. think, I, and I've been uh, in close contact with my PhD course convener um, at Leicester. So what I've understood is that uh, in 2011-2012, they scrapped the one-year work visa that they used yeah. to give hmm. international students after they completed a degree. Yeah. And subsequent to that, the international students who were coming to the UK has dropped off. Okay. At least at Leicester. Yeah. At least for the course I went to. Yeah. Let, let me put it that way. Uh, and because of that, the department wasn't making enough money. Okay. Because they weren't getting enough international students yeah. coming in. Because obviously when you say 15,000 versus 3,000, yes, it's, it's always better to get, yeah. a, get one international yeah. student. Uh, and I wonder if this is a reaction to that. That's a fair point, actually. Uh, to get more students just yeah. to be able to That's cope a fair point. with so, that. One other mechanism that's being changed is that it's becoming, inc- it's not becoming, so like universities have leveraged this to make it as easy as possible to get students in. Okay. So they've lowered their grade requirements okay. significantly. So the idea is that students are not very fast because of upfront costs. Okay. Because you don't have to pay back government loans until you're earning, let's say, £25,000 a year. Yeah. So if you're earning less than £25,000 a year. Yeah. You can just go to university for free. Yeah. So most people will want to go to, let's say, a Bristol and not a London Metropolitan. Hmm. So everyone's just heading towards these not so restricted universities. Yeah. Uh, without having to think about financial consequences in the short term. Yeah. So it is the whole system is just ballooning at this point. Yeah. Not sure how Brexit is going to change this, but it's just an interesting insight. Yeah. No, fascinating. And just to you know, Bristol is a good university. I went there. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry, man. <laughs> I had no idea. Anyway. Okay, so with that, I'm going to come to the final story of today. And uh, uh, from universities, uh, seals, leopard seals, and uh, Brexit, and co- corporations, I'm going to leave you with this final story about karaoke in South Korea. Do you know what, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Norea Bang means? No. Okay, no. so Norea Bang essentially means these music rooms, these music centers, and the singing rooms. And uh, in South Korea, the traditional culture, work culture has been that, you know, uh, once you finish your day's job, you go down. It's a very hierarchical society in many ways. Once you you go with your boss and your boss takes you out and your boss essentially bores the life out of you at karaoke centers where everybody is asked to sing and everybody is asked to perform. And the younger you are, the more you're essentially bullied into this. And obviously, sometimes this also leads to sexual harassment and all sorts of other things. But increasingly... This idea of karaoke centers post-work has sort of uh, died down. There are nearly 33,000 such karaoke centers in the country, uh, which is down from 35,000 in 2011. Um, Just last year, about 1,400 of these shut down. And so why is this sort of trend changing is basically because of better work culture. Um, and better regulation. Um, And also, increasingly, people... This is one of the lines in the piece which I thought was fascinating, is that it's not that karaoke is dying, it's that South Koreans are relieved that their careers no longer hinge on jangling a a tambourine for their tone-deaf bosses. Um, And I thought it was just fascinating how this plays a role in terms of office politics and, you know, career progression. Um, But some of the legislative changes that have happened over the last... uh, over the recent past has been that the working week has been reduced to 52 hours, um, which has led to a reduction on this late night nonsense. Um, but conversely, it's not that singing is dying in South Korea. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's listening to this podcast, and if you're young enough, you know that South Korean K-pop is extremely popular, oh, yeah. even in India. Um, so singing is not dead. And there are lots of individual singing bars sort of things where you can go in a room, 
put in some money and sing a song and record yourself singing a song um, and this piece quotes some people who see that as a an activity to kill time uh, one of those hobbies you could do that after this after this recording absolutely i i <laughs> presume i'd be one of the tone deaf not people not for pub, not for public consumption <laughs> yes, exactly but that's what they do now to just go and you know blow off some steam yeah and that's a fascinating way to do that so if you do enjoy singing give it a shot <laughs> and if you go do go to south korea do record yourself singing in one of these booths <laughs> all right so with that we're going to end this conversation thank you so much rohan thank you so much ambavi and thank, thank you, you so much for listening thank you manoj yeah we're going to go sing now all right yeah. we'd love to hear what you think about this chat check us out at our twitter handle at takshashila inst on our quora space all things policy For the latest analysis and research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode.